Well, my name's Mark Powell. Welcome to another edition of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. My special guest with me today is someone whom I'm very excited to meet and to talk to, and that's Simon Manchester, who is a man that really needs no introduction. Simon, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you with us. Now, Simon, you've been described, and I'm sorry if this embarrasses you, um, but a number of people have said this to me, that you're one of Australia's foremost preachers uh, in terms of giftedness, effectiveness, and outreach. What do you think it is been about, by the grace of God, your ministry and your particular approach to preaching that has been so distinctive? Um, Well, first of all, that's a very high praise. Um, And I think the preaching which I watched being done by people like John Stott when I was a young believer, my father-in-law, Ken Short, was um, biblical, clear, and vital, and that made a big impact on me. It was when I probably went to work with Dick Lucas in London Mm. that I turned a little corner, um, not only in his philosophy of preaching, which is to listen well to the text before you speak. So the mark of a good speaker is you're a good listener. Mm. Uh, But also I think um, there was a little turning point where I was away on a retreat with soldiers And I suddenly realised that if anybody was going to speak to them of Christ, it had to be me. And so I moved as a young man from having to say something, because I was given a slot every day, to having something to say. And so the combination of working at the clarity and realising the conviction, the importance of what we're asked to do, really came home to me. I don't know if I've made that as clear as I could, but Mm. it's basically you're in your room Mm -hmm. in a hotel type thing. Mm. You've got to speak to non-Christian soldiers that evening and you suddenly realise you have the job. Mm. If anybody is going to help them to understand Christ, it's you. That conviction, I think, has been a big help to me because, as I say, it's not just that I'm on the roster Mm. to have to say something, I have to fill in 25 minutes, Mm. but I have something to say. Mm. Now, I remember, oh, I hope this doesn't put you too much on the spot. When Princess Diana died, uh, I think I heard somebody say that you wrote um, to the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, encouraging him, exhorting them to preach the gospel uh, at that, because it's going to be the biggest television audience ever. Is that, is that true? Gee, I wish I could say I did that. <laughs> I, I may have said to my own congregation, Ah, that this is the great opportunity. Mm. Um, But I didn't do anything about it except maybe say it and maybe pray it. Mm. So in your ministry as a pastor teacher, would you say you're more an evangelist, like in terms of speaking to those soldiers, or do you see yourself as more a teacher discipling the flock? That's a very good question. I don't want to distinguish between the two because I think the whole Bible is gospel Mm -hmm. and I think that the gospel is good for the unbeliever, of course, but the believer very much Mm. uh, because we believers are natural unbelievers and we're natural doubters and therefore we need to be being told the gospel all the time, wherever it comes from in the scriptures. But um, I've often said that... um, When a person preaches, they've probably got their antenna out for somebody. When you come out of Bible college, your antenna are very much tragically thinking of your lecturers Mm. who could be present. 
and will wonder whether you've crossed every T and dotted every I. Mm. But it's very important to have your antenna, I think, for the bloke who's just walked in for the first time, mm. as well as the very mature believer who's been there forever. So I talk about preaching for the plumber as well as the professor. Mm. So I'm thinking of Trent, who's been dragged in by his girlfriend because they're getting married. Yep. He's never been in, into church in his life, mm. and he's in the back row, and I want him to hear the first thing I say and come with me on mm. the journey of the talk. But I also want the professor, who's halfway down the pews, who's been around for decades, to say at the end, if possible, I learned or, or relearn good things. Mm. So prof the plumber and the professor... Mm. It's the kind of the tension in mm. the preaching. And I once said this publicly, I'm preaching for the plumber and the professor. Mm. And a professor came up to me afterwards and said, I'm so thankful that you make things simple because we professors are so stupid. <laughs> yeah. So as a preacher myself, I'm intrigued to hear you, you, your approach to preaching. And I know that this is something that you're very involved in with Cornhill. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, Cornhill began in the UK because the theological colleges were getting feeble in their convictions about scripture. Mm. And so this little Cornhill was begun not to replace them, but as a way of preparing people to go to them. Mm. And so Cornhill was set up to help people in the UK, especially probably around London, um, do some grappling with the Bible. And then when they went to theological college to know their way around the Bible, have some confidence in the scriptures and probably cope with what's going to be a little more undermining. Mm. Cornhill has uh, since spread to a few different places and we have one in Sydney. Um, and I'm thankful that it's been blessed by God so that although mm. it began very small, there's about 50 this year doing Cornhill, which is wow. great. These are, these are lay people. Yeah. And Cornhill has a double aim to help people get the Bible right because you don't want to get it wrong mm. and get it across mm. because you don't want it to fly up into the air away from everybody. Mm. And as you know, a lot of preaching is right but not across and a lot of preaching is across but not right. Mm. So it's working on those two things. And does that come back to what you were saying at the very beginning about listening first to the yeah, text? Yeah, very much. And how do you do that practically? Like walk us through that as a preacher – how do you, what approach or strategy do you employ so that you can listen carefully to the text, especially if the text is very familiar to you? Yeah. <clears throat> I'll tell you a quick story which will help to begin this, and that is that when I got to St Helens, I realised that Dick Lucas was listening to the scriptures very carefully. That is, he was dissatisfied with, with superficial, shallow approaches. Uh, an example I often take is the little parable of the judge and the widow. Mm. And if you just read that quickly, you think, well, this parable is telling you that you've got to be a genius and a giant in prayer. On and on and on and on and on. Dick would say, no, I don't think that's what the parable's saying at all. I think it's teaching us that God is nothing like the judge yeah. and the, you're nothing like the widow. Yeah. And therefore, you ought to be very encouraged in your praying because look who you're speaking to yeah. and look who you are. Yeah. And that is an encouragement to pray. Now, if you haven't thought hard about it, you will just dive in and preach, pray, 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 be a giant, be a genius, mm. which is depressing to everybody. Mm. But if you've listened carefully, you'll get what it is probably really saying, mm. and that'll be a great libera uh, a liberation to the mm. people who are listening. So when I started working with Dick, and I'm straight out of 
Sydney, and I'm straight out of Moore College, or a couple of years out of Moore College, he would say to me sometimes in his very lovely British accent, oh, dear brother, what are you preaching on this Sunday? <laughs> and I would t- start to tell him, and he would yawn, this huge yawn in my face, right. as if to say, oh. you haven't interested me in the slightest. Oh. You know, In fact, I don't think you're anywhere near the point of the passage. So this did me a power of good mm. in a punchy sort of way because it drove me back to the scriptures and I didn't dare tell him what I was speaking on until I'd done some proper homework. Mm. Well, one day he was running a conference and um, I said to him at the end of this class with all the young preachers and he was showing them all what the passage was really about and how they'd often miss the point. Mm. And I said to him, Dick, you know, you're like the high priest of the Bible. You know, we're going to all have to contact you on Saturday and say, what's the passage really mm-hmm. about? And he said, this is classic Dick Lucas, he said, no, brother, I'm trying to save you from being a water beetle. And a water beetle is that tiny little insect that just runs over the film of the water but never really breaks in. And that is the most important thing I learned from him. Mm. In other words, don't skim over your Bible. Mm. Don't just assume you know what it says. Don't come to it with all your own genius and or bring to it all your cleverness as if you are the secret of the Bible. Mm. But stay with it until you get what it says and you care what it says. Because when you get what it says and you care what it says... You've got something to say. Mm. The great danger, of course, is to see a passage and think, oh, I know what that's all about. And you just say something completely predictable Mm. and may have missed the point. Mm. Sorry, that was such a long answer. No, no, it's very helpful. Um, A slightly tangential one, but a very personal one. Can you talk about the relationship of prayer and preaching, particularly for the preacher? Yeah, well, first of all, I think if you are going to be praying for your own preaching, um, at some stage you've got to send up a really heartfelt prayer Mm. that the Lord would help you. You know, the standard line, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word, is a good thing to pray. But I do think that built into our helplessness and our desperation Mm. is the kind of prayer that says, Lord, this passage bores me Mm. it doesn't really excite me at all and I don't know what to do and I think the problem is me and not you so I'm praying that you'll help me because I actually believe this is living active and sharper than a two-edged sword Mm. but it's doing nothing for me at the moment Mm. and I'm not asking for a earth-shattering experience Mm. I just do want to know why this passage what it's saying and why it's important Mm. That kind of praying doesn't have to be long and heroic, but it does have to be humble and, and genuine. It seems to me that a big uh, thing behind the background here, what you're saying, is a high view of Scripture will be met with a high view of preaching. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I- ideally, um, it, if you've got the high view of preaching, you'll do your work and you'll do your praying And part of your work is getting it, as I say, getting it right, and part of it's getting it across. So there is a little bit of craft in preaching Mm -hmm. where you have to think about how will I get people who are not interested to come with me Mm. and how will I get people to stay with me and how will I get people to remember Mm. things that have been said. Mm. And that, I think, involves a little bit of craft. So I'm not a despiser of craft 
Okay, so talk talk about that. What what is it that you're doing and thinking and aiming at when you're seeing seeking to craft the sermon so that the arrow hits home? Well, the first thing is I think we want Christ to be honored. Mm-hmm. And and that when we pray for that, it sometimes will be at the expense of our own honor. So we'll sometimes okay. be saying, I'm praying that although I would love this to be a very popular sermon and I'd love it to be a successful sermon and I'd love it to be a me-enhancing, me-glorifying sermon and all these other sinful things that are operating in my brain, but I'm especially praying that through it Christ would be honoured. And I think in John 16, 14, where where Jesus says the Holy Spirit seeks the glory of Christ... Mm. The Holy Spirit is probably pleased with that pursuit that we seek the glory of Christ. Mm. Then, of course, as I say, we want people to understand what the passage says. We want them to be liberated by the truth. Mm. We want them to go out saying, how great is Jesus Christ? How gracious is Jesus Christ? We want them to be helped in their walk with him. We want them to be helped in their service. We want them to be helped in their witness. It's a big ask. Yeah. But that's... They're the sort of things that are running in the back of my head. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I think more than a few pulpits have had this um, stenciled on the pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus, Yeah, which is said to the preacher Yeah, uh, as a great reminder. Um, now, for years, well, for 30 years, you were the minister at St Thomas's. What do you think kept the fire going in your own heart as a pastor and as a preacher over those years? Um, I think the scriptures uh, really are the the treasure chest. Mm. You know, they they are the Pacific Ocean that you can get into quickly, but you can explore for the whole of your life. Mm. Uh, and the grace of God, I think, is the other great issue: mm-hmm. um, helping people to know that the the love of Christ is higher than you thought, mm. deeper than you thought, wider than you thought, longer than you thought. Mm. Those are the things. So really the truth and the love of Christ um, are the kind of the pools in front of you, the, yeah. the, the lakes in front of you, the oceans in front of you in yeah. which you kind of swim. Um, hand in hand, I, I think, with that is uh, the people who uh, basically are glad to be hearing the word of God mm. and are praying for you. Um, and underneath it all, you know, are the everlasting arms that keep you going. Mm. Along the way, there's a lot of failure and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of grief and there's a lot of heartache. But all of that sort of fuels you. If you could go back in time and say something to yourself and give yourself advice as a young pastor, preacher, what would you say? Um, one of the things that I learned about seven years down the track of my ministry is that I was not preaching the grace of God well to believers. I knew how to explain grace to unbelievers. You know, it's grace, not works. Mm. But I wasn't good at preaching grace to believers. Mm. And if you don't preach grace well to believers, um, if you're a natural um, stick-wielding preacher, Mm. then your people will either cooperate because of you, or they will basically collapse and fail. Okay, so how do you preach grace well? What have you learned? In how well, I think that? you keep looking at the passage 
in the light of the fact that the one who is speaking the passage is full of grace and is very wonderful. I'm not okay. I'm not neglecting that he is holy, that he's a judge, that he's you know demanding. But it's like the raising of your kids. If you raise your kids so that they hear you say, be good and I'll love you, mm. it's torture. Yeah. Somehow they've got to hear, we love you, whatever happens. Yeah. But sometimes the love will look like a big hug and sometimes the love will look like a gentle smack. Mm. Yeah. That's because we love you. Okay. And you want the child to hear at the end, I know that my dad, I know that my mum loves me. And you want the person listening to the word of God to say, I'm absolutely persuaded that this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, loves me and wants the best. Yeah, it's very good. Excellent. Um, if I can change track a little bit, you're now retired um, from your former role, at least from St Thomas's, still heavily involved in ministry. But you've gotten around and you've been able to observe preaching in different churches and indeed how we conduct our services and corporate worship. You've written on this. It's caused some to cheer, some to boo. boo. Tell us, what are your observations? For those that haven't read or, or heard, give us a, a summary of what you're, you're seeing. Yeah. First of all, Mark, you're a very good interviewer. <laughs> you must have done this before. No, I'm just very interested in who I'm interviewing. Here you are without any notes and you're steering this in a fantastic direction. Um, well, yes, I have retired and I spent last year in the weird world of COVID going and visiting places and sometimes just speaking into a camera to an empty building. Mm. But I also went and observed quite a lot of places um, because I was a lot freer than I'd been. Mm. Uh, and I think I wrote the article, you know, conscious that the COVID thing in 2020 made things very difficult and some people adapted wonderfully, mm. quickly, and mm. some people adapted slowly. Mm. And so I wouldn't want to pour any more sort of trouble on people who've been trying to work out what sure. to do in 2020. It's been a difficult time. Yeah, it's been a difficult time. But all time. those caveats aside... Yeah, um, but what I did observe was as I travelled, I suddenly thought I'm used to being things being done in the church, you know, as best we can do them, mm -hmm. which is not always great. Mm. But I did go to a lot of places and I observed things being done, what I thought were not well at all. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes it was um, just people who were leading who didn't know where they were going and sometimes it was a message to kids that had more to do with um, nothing than anything. Mm. And then there were people singing who couldn't sing and then there were prayers that were crazy and there were readings that were bad and there were sermons that were lost. And, you know, I just found myself becoming a grumpy old man really <laughs> but also thinking to myself we should challenge ourselves that this window of opportunity on Sundays is the great window of the work that we're doing. You know, mm. this is what people come to. Mm. So if I'm bringing a friend and it's really bad, it's going to be so much more difficult to get them back. Mm. So we've really just got to work very hard on what we're doing. I think it was John Stott who said that people are looking, whatever their sphere, they're looking for something transcendent. Mm. And we have the great privilege of introducing people to a transcendent God mm. with the best portraying of God that we can possibly do. 
So we can't afford to do bad portrayings of a great God. Mm. Now, I didn't want to be hard on people, but I did want to sort of rattle the cage of the pastors and the people that I am aware of. Well, you've definitely rattled the cage. Um, but I think it's been a good thing. I mean, you've spoken the truth in love and um, you've given us your observations. And obviously, as somebody that's led uh, a church for all of your ministry, uh, so I think it's important we listen to. Um, here's a spicy question. You talk, uh, uh, the key word I thought you just said then was transcendence. Is it particularly, can I say, in Sydney and maybe a particular view of worship where we flattened it out and we have made it horizontal rather than and forgotten the vertical? So if I can put it in theological terms, we've, we've really emphasised the imminence of God. Have we lost any sort of focus on the transcendence of God? Uh, I know that's a polarising position to take, but how, what would be your response to that? Have we, have we emphasised imminence over transcendence? Um, if we mean by imminence that uh, we know God, we know his word, we've got the reformed faith down pat, yeah. th- there is that danger. Mm. Um, transcendence, uh, I think, if we understand the very greatness of God, means that we probably need more of the Isaiah reaction, mm. which is... You are unbelievably great. Mm. And therefore there is a humility in the way we do things and there's a carefulness in the way we pray and there's a seriousness as well as a joyfulness in the way we preach. Mm. And so, yes, I think we've all got huge lessons to learn there, Mm. probably from the giants of the past. Mm. Uh, Was it Packer who said, you know, we're really pygmies compared to the great giants of the past. Mm. So we have to be very careful that we don't become too Australian Mm. in being casual, laconic, slack, laid back with regard to God, this is our great opportunity to say this is an area where we just cannot afford to be like this. Mm. I mean, I think of the surfer who's facing 25-foot waves. Mm. He cannot at that point, unless he's demented, become really sort of casual and careless. He's got to be respectful awed by what he's dealing with Mm. and we must uh, remember that's the god we're dealing with because really what you're saying here is as a preacher we need to be aware of the great god that we serve as we handle the oracles of of god yeah of truth and i think um, uh, you know our sunday services somebody who's leading has to steer through the gravitas Mm. and the joyfulness yeah and you don't want to just lean to total gravitas which is depressed yeah and you don't want to lean to joyfulness, which is silly and trivial. Mm. It's holding those two together, Mm. which is the task of the person who's leading or preaching. So what would be your response to somebody like Martin Lloyd-Jones that wrote in Preaching and Preachers, I can forgive a man for anything who's preaching, except that he not give me a sense of the presence of God. What's your response to a statement like that? Um, Well, I do... (laughs) I do love Lloyd-Jones. I I do find some of his thoughts a little bit mystical because Mm. I'm not really sure whether you can just capture and convey a feeling for people. Mm. I think we've got to work on what we can work on, which is the praying, the proclaiming, and the manner in which we do it. So he might have been very disappointed by a lot of the services at North Sydney if he came 
Okay. But I, my hope is that he would come and see that we tried to do things reverently and joyfully. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not... Yeah. Okay. I, no, I, that's helpful. I understand the point. And I, I understand his point as mm. well, that um, the person who gives him a low view of God mm. or a silly view of God is probably not helping him at all. Mm. If I could change track a little bit and uh, just talk about the, the preacher's own um, personal walk with God. Can you explain a little bit about what you think is the dynamics of that, obviously the importance of that and some of the challenges uh, in that regard? Yeah, I think I'd probably go back to the pastoral letters, you know, and I think of how the Apostle Paul says, um, you know, in a certain house you've got vessels that are for ignoble, ignoble and some for noble. Yeah. I don't think he's saying in that passage that um, if you make yourself clean or work at your holiness that you will then be used for sensational purposes. I don't think he's saying work mm. at your holiness and you'll be promoted. Mm. I think he's saying the work that we're doing is so great mm. that we must work at our carefulness. Mm. So it's not just the matter of our content, but it's the manner of the life behind it. Mm. Having said that, because every pastor and preacher knows what a sinful wretch they are, you do have to do a lot of reflecting on the grace of God, mm. because who's going to step up and speak if you're looking for perfection? Mm. Uh, Dick Lucas, my boss, used to sometimes say when he got up, well, if you knew how sinful I was, I, you wouldn't listen to me today. Mm. And then after a pause, he'd say, but if I knew how sinful you were, I wouldn't speak to you today. And so we we're all on, the same, all on the same keel. Mm. Um, but I do think uh, the person who thinks they'll do their ministry and live a double life is going to be personally torn in half. It will tip over into the congregation in some way. Mm. And, of course, it's dishonouring to God. Mm. So, you know, let us learn the lesson of those who've had very public falls mm. and work on our private life. Mm. Let's say for a moment um, we could give you carte blanche um, leadership at more College and you could direct the students in, in key ways, you've got a blank sheet of paper in front of you, what sort of priorities would you be wanting to emphasise in the young uh, graduates coming out, going into pastoral ministry or the mission field? I think um, the colleges that I'm aware of are doing a, a great job mm. and students need to be grounded in, in the scriptures and they need to have their framework. So I don't think I could sort of comment or improve sure. on that at all. Uh, I'm very thankful for the pastoral care that's given at the colleges as well. Mm. I think probably it's the injection of the Cornhill principles into college, which I would be especially interested in, mm -hmm. that students would be working from day one to the time they finished on getting the passage right and getting it across. Mm. And one of the dangers for a theological student is that you bring all your systematics to the Bible. And so what happens then is as soon as you see the word temptation, you just bring your system. Mm. But it's the text that should drive the yeah, system. So coming up from the grassroots. Yeah, mm. yeah. The text should expand the system if possible. Mm. And there'll be things in your system that are deficient mm. and the text is capable of perfecting, improving your system. Mm. 
So it's always the danger to clamp down on the text with your system and it's always the blessing to have the text enhance your system. Mm. And yet systematic theology is important, isn't it? Very. Everybody has a systematic theology and everybody needs one. Mm. Um, And we need the system to guard us from a great deal of sort of crazy drifts into weirdness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Simon, just a couple more questions. Um, What sort of issues do you think are coming over the hill that we need to be aware of as a church? And then secondly, how should we respond to them? Um, first of all, I, I can see that evangelism is getting more difficult. Mm. Um, it's getting more difficult for all of us because you know we just find ourselves so far away from the world in which we are living mm. And therefore, I think we've got to work a lot harder at building bridges with people um, and we've got to work harder on the content of what we say being appropriate, appropriate textually and appropriate culturally. Um, And we've also got to get ready, I think, to answer the hard questions that are coming. Um, Such as? Well, questions like, um, I'm tempted to just say the uniqueness of Christ, but I think I would perhaps say the narrowness of Christianity, the correct narrowness of Christianity. Mm. But the, you know, the hot issues have to do really with gender and sexuality, Mm. those sorts of things. We've got to find good ways of dealing with those Um, and just be working at it all the time. I'm not saying there's any sort of bumper sticker out there which is going to solve our problems mm. you know there's not one simple textbook uh, beyond the scriptures themselves we've got to think very hard about that within the church um probably you know it's uh, morale mm-hmm. um joy those things which are being beaten down mm. by the unbelief around us and the unbelief inside us mm. um a challenge for both of our denominations yours anglican yeah, you know, mine Presbyterian, they've called it such a thing as the minister drought. Lots of men, particularly starting out in ministry, not finishing like you have. Um, do you perceive that as being accurate? And if so, what do you think are some of the factors as to causing that to happen? I don't know how the prezi numbers are going in terms of college, but um, certainly more college has got plenty of students at the moment. Mm-hmm. There is a, a drought in putting senior ministers in place in the Anglican Church. Okay. So there's something like 40 places waiting for a senior minister, even though there are lots of ministers around. So that's a tricky issue. I don't exactly know what is behind all that, but I think the archbishop and bishops in the Anglican Diocese of Sydney are working very hard to make sure that somebody is put in who's ready mm. and not somebody put in who mm. is unready and needs to be removed or replaced yeah there's an old saying i know i spent some time in country new south wales and they used to always say to me mark better to have no one than the wrong one yeah you'd agree yeah very much so yeah it's 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 the case isn't it that it's very difficult once a a man is in in our systems that they'll they'll be in for quite a while yeah and the impact is can be massive yeah and the perplexities that face senior ministers now like senior elders um, and senior leaders in the church, you know, just things just get more and more complicated. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a 
locum at the moment in mm. the eastern suburbs yeah. and it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. Why is that? Well, it's a building that holds five or 600 people with about 40 coming and there's virtually nobody under 70. And um, it's a very traditional place which is declining, declining, declining and not really wanting any change. Mm. And so I'm trying to work out, do you change and lose all the relationships or do you leave it the same and just you know walk toward the cliff of death? Mm. So it's a tricky one. Wow. Um, maybe one final question. Um, here you are in retirement. Now the Lord has used a lot of older people in great ways what's what do you think the lord has in store for you you know in in this season of your life well i have these three part-time jobs so you know i feel like a busy boy so you're a you're a locum at a, at a church preaching yeah. every week still yeah um you're running cornhill as I'm a doing, preaching program yeah. for young preachers and i'm doing two days at more college working with students in preaching yeah okay yeah so the aim is occasionally to run some seminars, but mm. often it's to sit with little small groups and talk about their preaching. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the students send me their talks, either as a script mm. or an audio or a video, mm. and I try and give them some friendly feedback. Now, just on that, you are a full script preacher, aren't you? I tend to preach from um, half notes. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm preaching in Colossians 4 this week, I'll have as my first little line in Colossians, and then I will just unpack that. Mm. And then it'll put a recap and then maybe a couple of words. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I tend to preach from briefer notes. And you, I, I'm intrigued. Your thoughts on that, the, the benefits, costs between full notes, you know, to no notes, to half notes. Is it, is it just different horses for different courses? Or do you, do you think there's a model that you encourage people to follow? Uh, I don't think there's a simple rule. I think there are some very great preachers who've been doing it for a long time who do full scripts. Mm. But I wouldn't encourage a young preacher to do brief notes mm. um, because it's not a good discipline. I think it's better to have fuller notes early mm. and then maybe abbreviate later. See, it's interesting to hear you say that you are a half-script person because whenever I've heard you, and I've often heard you on the radio because um, you're – sermons um i think still are aren't they tele telecast they're, they're still playing oh, very old talks yeah yeah and i never hear you stumble <laughs> you're just clear and um it's it's almost melodic um what what do you think has helped you to develop that skill is it just a gift from god or is it just experience i've never really thought about it i've never thought about it i i realized that i don't say Amanah, and I'm not sure why that is. Mm. Um, <laughs> here I am saying it. Because I think there's always something which is coming to be said. So I don't sort of find myself umming and ahhing in preaching. But I don't know. I don't know, Mark. I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Maybe um, there is a little bit of gift of the gab or something that keeps you going. I don't know what it is. Mm. I found early in my preaching that um, if I had a full script that people would nod off because it sounded like a full script. And I always encourage young people who've got a full script to, to read it privately and then circle some key words so that they just have to see the word and a lot of it comes back to them. Mm. Whereas just reading a paper can often be very tedious. And I found early when I would write out sermons in my terrible handwriting in full 
that occasionally I would think of something to illustrate and I would just write down the one word Fred or whatever mm. it was. And at that point I noticed everybody sitting up for the first time and looking at me. Mm. And I suddenly thought, well, it's this liberty which people recognise and they listen to, whereas the long red script can be quite sort of soporific. And is that liberty also the thing, the very thing that's helping you to connect because you're, you're, you're really trying to engage with your listener. There's a, even though they might seem passive and not saying anything, there is this interplay between you and the congregation, isn't there? I'm sure that's right, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, may the Lord bless you, continue to bless you in your ministry. Uh, thank you. Long into retirement. Thank you, Mark, um, and you. And I'm sure you'd say we never retire. We keep serving the Lord, so thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope you've been blessed and encouraged by this episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. I'm Mark Powell and I hope to see you next time.